Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach at the Naval Institute. With me, and this week he's on the line from Newport, Rhode Island, is my usual co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor of Proceedings Magazine. Bill, how are you, sir? Hey, Ward. It's great to be in Newport, always. Uh, any chance to, to uh, you know, come to almost uh, what I would call it Second City, you know, for the, for the Navy, home of the Naval War College, and I'm participating in an event hosted by the War College and by uh, the Joint Staff J-7, looking at the Joint Operating Environment 2035 and what kind of Navy the Navy will have to have, capabilities that the Navy will have to have uh, to uh, be prepared for uh, operations, presence, combat, et cetera, uh, against the the potential four-plus-one adversaries, you know that's about 20 years from now, so it's it's kind of fun. It's always fun to be at the at uh, Newport. How's the weather up there? Is it cold yet? Uh, it hasn't been too much colder than it's been in Annapolis. So last night was uh, rainy uh, and very windy, so the rain was kind of coming sideways. Um, but all the locals were saying, yeah, it's you know sort of typical Newport winter weather. Um, today it got a little bit sunny and was uh, maybe you know, 55 degrees, so it wasn't wasn't too bad. It's supposed to get real cold tonight though. And you're headed back tomorrow? Yep, we uh, we do the readout from this war game tomorrow morning, and then uh, my flight's at 3, get in at BWI at 4.30 or so. Yep, so back in the office on Friday. Okay, well, we'll look forward to seeing you back here soon. We've missed you in Beach Hall this week. Um, so last week we spoke about the fallout from the skywriting uh, situation with the, the electric... Uh, you know, the growler. Um, and I realized that we, we missed a, a topic that uh, we really needed to talk about, and that is the, the airmanship and heroism of Lieutenant Stephen Combs. So to remind the audience, uh, he was the pilot of the C-2 um, who, uh, that went down going from Okinawa to, or was it, yeah, from, from Iwakuni uh, to the Reagan um, he ditched the airplane uh, allegedly because of a, and it looks like the initial indications, uh, not to get ahead of the mishap report, but the initial indications are that the airplane had an engine malfunction, so he ditched. And in the process, he saved eight of the 11 souls on board. Unfortunately, he was among those who didn't make it out. So um, the report at military.com quoted. Um, one of the survivors is saying, quote, he flew the hell out of that airplane. So just wanted to point out that uh, this is the kind of talent we have out there on a daily basis. Um, And uh, Lieutenant Combs will be remembered for fantastic airmanship um, and uh, representative of of the the quality of our naval aviators out there. So I, I felt remiss that we didn't bring that up in the podcast while we're talking about some other dubious circumstances so uh uh rest in peace shipmate lieutenant combs and uh thanks for uh for your talent in saving eight eight lives um the other thing uh yeah, that's good, happening good, uh, go good ahead point, Bill. Ward. good yeah just a good point good example and uh you know some say pilots are overpaid i would say in this case he proved uh you know, every bit of the value of his flight pay and his pay and, and the professionalism and the training uh, to bring an airplane that had lost one engine 
you know, to, to rest in the sea in a way that uh, most of the most of the crew and the passengers were able to get out. So uh, it's a great story with uh, I mean, it's a horrific story, but also a great story of uh, professionalism and uh, and heroism. Um, what else we got going on? Uh, so Monday, uh, Defense Forum Washington was, uh, we talked a little bit about that last week, uh, one of the conferences that the Naval Institute puts on every year uh, in Washington at the museum. Uh, our conferences uh, folks just do an amazing job of getting a, a lineup of uh, amazing speakers and panelists that talk about the most important you know things that are going on in uh, national security in defense and in the Navy and the, the sea services that you were there. I was on my way to Newport. Uh, so what, what were the discussions like? Well, I mean, after these events, I'm always, uh, not to toot our own horn, but, uh, I'm always, uh, proud of, of the talent and the, the level of, uh, power that, uh, the Naval Institute can, can assemble. Right. So uh, in this defense forum, we had, Secnav Spencer, we had uh, the, the vice chief, we had three experts who have been very active on the pages of proceedings and in proceedings today. Uh, they were speaking about um, the uh, the fallout from the two collisions at sea a few months ago. Uh, so a level of expertise and um, authority that that is is unique, you know, and, and so um, starting with with. Seknav, um, I had met Seknav actually on the sideline of a Navy football game introduced by the superintendent. Um, and I, I knew that he was a Marine Corps veteran. He had been a uh, H-46 driver. Um, but I'd never heard him speak um, at uh, at length. And, and I'll tell you, I, I was impressed. I, I was especially, uh, you know, Against the last Seknav, who was uh, wasn't terribly popular to put it to be cryptic about it, um, and seemed like sort of a, a, a social engineering as his primary uh, sort of motivation. Uh, that's not at all what I'm getting from Seknav Spencer. So I, I thought he talked um, brass tacks. I, I thought uh, he was as candid and uh, forthright as as uh, you know a guy in a, a political appointee office can be while he holds the office. Um, but some of the things he said, let me let me bring up some a few of the uh, the uh, the quotes that he put out here. He said, and this was sort of the bottom line of his remarks, was my goal and quote my goal is to never send our troops into a fair fight. Uh, as he was talking about the programs of record and tra- talking about to get out from under the shadow of sequestration. Um, he also uh, put a stat to the impact of sequestration. Uh, sequ- sequestration. He was talking about um, the a continuing, you know, con- the CRs, the continuous rev- resolutions uh, o- over the years. And they have cost, let me see if I can find this, uh, this stat here in my... Uh, my notes, uh, CRs, continuous resolutions, have cost the Department of the Navy roughly $4 billion since 2011. Uh, and so that is coincident with the uh, the creation of sequestration. So, you know, as he said, I can do a lot with $4 billion. Um, so I thought he was candid. I thought he was quantitative. It wasn't a lot of superlatives and and imprecision, 
Um, somebody asked a question, and this will segue to another subject for the podcast today about Fat Leonard. You know, where are we? And remember, this is Monday. I know, Bill, you're going to talk about some breaking news from from today about Fat Leonard. Um, but his quote about Fat Leonard was, the pig is through the python, meaning we've seen the worst of the fallout from from that with respect to uh, how it's um, had an impact on 06 and above, primarily. Um, so overall, I thought he was fantastic. He was followed by uh, former Undersecretary Bob Work, who's a Marine, who warned the crowd he was going to be pugnacious, and in fact he was. Um, he was he was uh, in rare form and uh, and just cold laid it out as a guy only a guy who's half warfighter half bureaucrat can be and and you know Bob Work is very beloved and and well respected uh, both in warfighters and in budgeteers and he was he was great so he he had some some very uh, pointed things to say about the process uh, he did counter some of what uh, Secretary Spencer said. So that was very interesting to uh, to hear his comments. Um, he was followed by uh, this three-person panel, um, which was, help me out with uh, uh, Kevin. Yeah, uh, go yeah, ahead. Kevin Iyer, Kevin Iyer uh, Jerry Roncolato, and um, John Cordell, uh, all of whom have commanded uh, several ships, at, at least one ship in a Desron. I think that was the uh, Jerry Roncolato. Um, and then uh, Kevin Iyer commanded three Aegis cruisers. Uh, John Cordell, I believe, uh, also commanded uh, a DDG and, uh, and a Desron. Uh, and they have been extremely active uh, authors for us for proceedings today, for proceedings and for the blog uh, particularly in the aftermath of uh, the Fitzgerald and McCain incidents, writing about lessons learned from those accidents, writing about what what caused uh, the Navy to get there culturally, what kinds of things have to be done to fix the problem, uh, the, you know, the full nature of the problem. And uh, Jerry Roncolato, who's a damage control expert, uh, wrote some insightful things about damage control lessons learned from uh, those two collisions. So uh, great to have them on a panel discussing the future of surface warfare. And the way that they sort of complemented each other, um, as you've just said, each of them brought a, a specific background, uh, whether it's damage control or, you know, uh, Kevin has commanded three Aegis cruisers, so he knows a thing or two um, about um, those that class of ship. Um, and as you said, he's been very active across the USNI product suite um, to, to offer really sound recommendations to the community uh, and the Navy at large uh, about how we go forward. And they they t- talked about the training track, how SWAS might be modified. They talked about the culture. They talked about material issues. They talked about 7th Fleet versus the other AORs. Uh, it was just really, really a... A uh, fantastic panel and, and uh, engaging end to end. They were followed by the the vice chief uh, Admiral Bill Moran, P three guy by trade, who uh, spoke a, a, about the the sort of strategic issues facing the f- the fleet. Um, he was uh, as an active duty four star is going to be on message, um, but also candid in terms of what the challenges are. He's a no nonsense kind of guy, um, and. Uh, 
that was a good way to end the event. So uh, it was at the museum, which is a cool venue. You're the top floor of the museum that overlooks, uh, uh, you know, on one side is the Smithsonian, and then out the other window is the Capitol looking down Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, it, or I guess that's not Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, but uh, the main drag there next to the Canadian, Canadian Embassy. Uh, so it's a cool place to have uh, uh, an event, a, a uniquely Naval Institute event in terms of, uh, you know, the, the subject matter, the, the moderators, the questions that the uh, educated audience asked, who was in attendance. It was great to see folks from authors to the trade press folks, Sidney Freedom and Hope, Hope Sec and the other folks from the trade press, um, industry side of the house, and then the active duty and international active duty presence was just a, a, a fun event. So the point is if you are, you know, watch, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. If these events come to your town, uh, make a point. If you're watching this podcast, obviously you you care about uh, events facing the, or issues facing the sea services. You care about the independent forum, other sea services that is the Naval Institute. And I'm saying to you, if you've never uh, been compelled to go to a Naval Institute event, you really should. Um, so we'll, each week we'll point out what the next thing is going to be, um, whether it's a CSIS uh, thing in town or West is coming up in early February in San Diego. That's a big one for us. Um, so, you know, don't, don't miss them. They're, they're all fantastic. And, uh, this one was no exception of that. Um, and, and in most, in most cases they are free to attend. So, uh, you don't have to lay out 25, 30 bucks uh, to get tickets. Uh, the Naval Institute, we, uh, we partner with great sponsors for, uh, all our events. Uh, and if you're interested, you can come uh, CSIS or at the Naval Academy or at West at the convention center, uh, or at the museum, as DFW was this week, um, our events are free of charge. Yeah, awesome. Good, great point. And West is free uh, for active duty. So, again, if you're stationed anywhere in the greater San Diego re- region, so let's say from, you know, Pendleton down to the southernmost part of uh, North Island and, and San Diego, NAS, or uh, Naval Base San Diego, uh, you know, plan on attending in early February. It's at the convention center right there downtown near the Gaslight District, great part of San Diego, and we'll have the same level of of uh, presenters and moderators talking about the issues that, that matter, everybody from CNO to Airbus to, uh, I think, SecNav is slated to speak out there as well. Um, comment on the Marine Corps. Comment on the Marine Corps. Uh, so they're all going to be there and, you you know, grab a microphone and ask ask them questions. And it's a great forum, a productive forum, an unflinching forum, just like uh, Naval Institute across the board, regardless of medium. So uh, make make plans. And we'll we'll keep talking about it in the, the weeks to come as well. Um, so what's been happening in the pages of proceedings? Uh, I know the new issue just hit the streets. Um, the December issue is out. Um, and... Uh, what else has been happening around uh, the the various uh, products that you oversee, Bill? So this week uh, in proceedings today, we've had a couple of uh, great pieces. Uh, first one on Monday afternoon, we posted a piece by a retired F-18 pilot talking about the uh, uh, the pilot retention shortage uh, in the Navy and the Air Force uh, and giving some ideas. His name is uh, Commander George Perry. 
uh, talked about uh, some ways that uh, the Navy can fix its uh, pilot retention shortage. Um, and then we've had uh, pieces, uh, two pieces the last two days by a uh, lieutenant commander, surface warfare officer named Toy Andrews. Uh, he's uh, writing, uh, we've heard this theme from a couple people before, but the idea of using of the surface community using the YPs, the Yard Patrol craft, uh, more. And uh, Lieutenant Commander Andrews writes that uh, the 18 or 20 YPs at the Naval Academy, um, that uh, the fleet should take maybe half of those and uh, redistribute them to fleet concentration areas like Norfolk, uh, the Seattle, Washington, uh, San Diego, perhaps Pearl Harbor area, um, uh, to give surface uh, ship drivers more of an opportunity to, to uh, get underway time, uh, you know, essentially time driving a ship, quartermasters and uh, uh, operations specialists also some more time, uh, get out underway, uh, get away from the pier, practice uh, basic evolutions uh, so that they don't lose, you know, their their uh, qualms and they uh, they you know build up more confidence in their ability uh, to anchor, to uh, to more to the pier, to get underway, uh, to operate in uh, you know some formations, to do some uh, celestial navigation. Uh, so that's that's a uh, two-parter called uh, back to driving ships. That we posted the last couple of days. Um, so before we leave that topic, Bill, that that that's there's so much that we're going to see in the months to come about the how do we adjust surface warfare training and how do we, in the wake of Fitzgerald and McCain, get back to ship driving. And that panel talked about some of that. Um, I had an interesting discussion with the head of professional development here at the Naval Academy uh, based on a question that Fred Rainbow, uh, the editor-in-chief of Proceedings, was asking for a future article about recommendations um, around uh, along the lines of what you're talking about, Bill. Um, and as we talk about creating centers of excellence like the RAG concept, and, and actually Admiral Dunn, aviator who's been very active in the proceedings and the Naval Institute forums through the years. Um, great guy, cl classic uh, old school aviator and has been uh, made a recommendation in uh, where did that show up, Bill? His, uh, it was proceedings today about uh, three weeks ago or so. Yeah. So he was talking uh, about using the Naval Aviation Safety Model and applying that. Uh, and he said a similar thing at the microphone during the Q&A. Um, but he was talking about the RAG concept. Right, so uh, aviators know that uh, you, you know you have your Cat One syllabus, your Cat Two, Three, Four. So when you go away from the cockpit, do a joint tour, get an advanced degree, do whatever you're going to do, um, you come back, you get a tailored syllabus based on your profile. You know, so if you have buku hours in the airplane that you're going to go back to the fleet and fly, you have a you know this syllabus if you're transitioning from another type model series you have this syllabus if you're a first time nugget you have you know this long comprehensive syllabus but he said why wouldn't you do something like that for surface warfare right instead of this underway OJT where you really are over leveraged against the training disciplines of the particular commands the various ships um, and right. so right. Th that's a that's a cool idea and the overall attitude that's pretty basic, and, and I saw somebody um, flag this on Twitter today, that the British Navy 
is one to look at because they treat um, they treat seamanship as a skill and they take pride in ship driving, right? And there's something not to slam our surface warfare brethren, but that there's something that there's an assumption that we, we all know how to do it and it's not a, not anything that uh, uh, demands too much focus. Right. And, 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 and it's not something that will erode over time necessarily. And if you treat it as just like aviators treat time in the cockpit, then that informs a different set of sort of training timing mechanisms and tracking mechanisms and schoolhouse requirements that will make us better underway, I believe. Now, talking specifically about numbers of YPs. So right now, the out-year budget does not have any thing in place where there would be there would be more procured. And I know more than I ever did as a function of my conversation um, with the head of ProDev uh, earlier this week um, about there are two different types and uh, how many he has and how many he needs and how many are in plan maintenance. And it's just like a mini, uh, you know, real battle group kind of a situation in terms of there are some in SLEP, there are some that are, you know, in plan maintenance, there are some who are uh, capable of doing these mission sets, there are some that they use for the academic year training, there are some that they use for the summer and over the horizon, more advanced training. And what he's saying is, I don't have, and if my requirements remain the same in terms of throughput with the Naval Academy, I don't have any to give a San Diego or Newport or Norfolk schoolhouse, right? So, yeah, yeah. no, I, right, right. So, um, I don't think that, the procurement mechanism is accounted for that, right? So, we'll see yeah, what happens yeah. uh, in terms of the requirements going That's forward. That's a very good point. I, 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 liked, I liked this uh, piece by Lieutenant Commander Andrews. Uh, but when I when I saw the idea of you know dividing up or taking half the YP fleet away from the Naval Academy, um, you know, and, and he makes the point that only about 25% of the Naval Academy graduating class becomes SWOs. Uh, well, that's true, but you know, another what 20% or so become sur- submariners, and driving a, a YP is applicable to submariners. It's applicable to uh, you know, aviators who are going to learn, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an applicable skill. Seamanship is to our profession. Yeah. I, uh, and, but anyway, and I had that. I, so I think, before think, you leave that, I had that conversation with Fred too. Right. And, and I reject that just like every Marines, a rifleman, every Naval officer is first and foremost skilled in seamanship and navigation, regardless of warfare, especially. Right. And so, you know, you don't say, well, only 20% of you go surface warfare. That is a bad data set. That's, that's, yeah. I reject that a because of what argument. you said about yeah. submariners, not to mention, I mean, on my first nugget t- tour, I was a boat officer where I really had to use my seamanship skills to keep from hitting seawalls in Naples and other places under rough conditions, you know, and, and, uh, you right. really do go right. back to your NS101 training and, you know, it, 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 and not to mention, if you go on in your career, you'll wind up being the skipper of a deep draft and, and eventually a, a, an aircraft carrier if you're an aviator. You know, so that yeah. I think that's that's kind of BS to say that, well, only 20 percent. So maybe those are the people who wind up using the YPs. That's no wrong answer. DOA, you know, uh, next question. Right. We should be we should be putting we should be putting more money into the program to buy more YPs. 
to put a squadron in San Diego and in Newport and in Norfolk and in Pearl Harbor to, you know, we should be plussing this up, right? We, yeah. we if, if we're serious about fixing the problems that have been seen in the, in the surface fleet in, in the past year or so, um, then, then we really need to be serious about giving them more time, more underway time, you know, and, and uh, we, we tend to forget the fact that uh, Admiral Chester Nimitz uh, commanded uh, ships as a, as a junior officer, right? And he even had the mistake of running aground when he was a JG in command. Um, we need to give people the opportunity to make some mistakes. Yeah, well, Secnav pointed that out that, and, as well. Yeah, and yeah. have that not, it can't, it can't, you cannot, you know, be crushing people's careers every time they make a small mistake. You just can't. Well, uh, and if you if you want to make a zero tolerance, you know, zero defect navy, then you got to give the training means to create that, right? Um, so right. let let's say hi to some of the folks who are checking in here on Facebook Live. Um, we got Shoman Ghazi, got Gary Marquis from uh, he calls himself a deplorable from Ontario, California, uh, U.S. Navy vet. Thanks, Gary. Good to see you, Marilyn Steber. Um, she says Bill Brissett, USN uh, ET kind of guy, retired. Uh, call call out to him. Bob Simpson, ahoy from Jax. Hi, Bob. Dave Nasco, good afternoon. Marilyn Steber. Um, for, uh, she said, I'm sorry I didn't go over to see the Coronado come home to San Diego. Um, new kind of ship. Like to know more sometime if you can about the Coronado. I guess that's what uh, Bill and Amphib. Sounds yeah, like that Coronado's would be an Amphib. LCS. Okay. Uh, oh, 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 okay. LCS, right. right. Well, that's the, yep, the new just, Gucci just one. coming but, back. That's very controversial. Depending on your opinion, it's either awesome or, or not so much. But uh, that's a t- subject for another day. Um, Scott Fahey says, cheers from Texas. And he also says his recommendation around um, our conversation with, uh, with the, the collisions at sea is 12-hour days is what I worked as a merchant marine. Uh, he says, USN vet, 78 to 83. Sleep is something the U.S. Navy needs to allow for. Notice how USN submarines are not playing bumper boats. Okay. Uh, Michaela Soa says, afternoon from Idaho. And then Scott Fahey again says, before enlisting, I grew up with sailboats, 25-foot powerboats. I reported to NTC San Diego with a few summers of boat helm time and paint shipping time. And then Danica says, good afternoon. So uh, love seeing you guys on Facebook Live. Ask us questions there, and uh, we'll try to get to them. So good, good stuff there. So I'm sorry, Bill, I cut you off. What else were you uh, going to talk about in terms of what's happening in the, the periodicals world? Uh, the other thing I wanted to point out, so the, the December issue, as you said, hit people's mailboxes uh, late last week on Friday. Uh, and uh, this is a, a month where we've got a lot of uh, uh, daring articles and, and things that some people will find uh, controversial. So we have an article by a serving uh, transgender uh, Coast Guard captain writing about whether transgender persons should be allowed to serve or not. Um, it's called, uh, you know, Should Trans- Transgender Persons Serve? The author is Jay Caputo, who also wrote earlier this year in proceedings about um, uh, the coming global competition for uh, fish resources. Uh, but but uh, that article uh, is getting quite a bit of attention uh, and uh, you know, Jay points out um, and, and provides some uh, concrete facts around a discussion that is often full of hyperbole. Uh, agree with it, disagree with it. Uh, we, we put it out there because 
uh, you know, written by a credible source <clears throat> offering um, what were a lot more facts-based than opinion-based, uh, you know, uh, parts of the conversation. And also because in terms of timing, uh, we know that uh, Secretary Mattis owes the White House a recommendation on transgender service. Uh, I think it's in late January that he owes that to the White House. So uh, by getting a, um, a piece in proceedings, uh, we were at least able to uh, influence the dialogue uh, and, you know, have a, have a part of the conversation that might get uh, you know, uh, Secretary Mattis's attention. So uh, that's out there. Uh, well, again, before we leave transgender, uh, if you get yeah. out of the emotional um, identity politics elements of it um, and social engineering, um, you, you know, again, you, you, you just get down to readiness and capabilities that that sort of informs a different uh, set of facts and a different set of ways forward than than doing other than that. The other thing that we'll see people get um, introduced is the the medical cost piece. Um, so that's 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 TBD in terms of whether you can join the military and then announce your transgender and have the military pay for the procedure. Um, and if you're going to have that argument. Um, it needs to be comprehensive in terms of m medical procedures that DOD medicine pays for already that are arguably elective um, and and unnecessary and in some cases uh, about uh, vanity, you know. And, and so we'll we'll shepherd this dialogue as we always do. Um, but I think you're right on, Bill, in terms of the timeliness. And 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 thank you for your editorial leadership here. Um, with with teeing that one up in a timely fashion. So another topic that came up this weekend um, was this uh, one author that uh, some of our folks on Twitter uh, said was a, an alt right dude. So uh, let, let's talk about that one a little bit. Yeah. So the article you're talking about is a, a piece written actually by two uh, retired um, military judge advocate general officers, both lieutenant colonels, uh, David Bolgiano, U.S. Army, uh, and uh, Lieutenant Colonel Taylor, uh, U.S. Air Force, uh, both served uh, earlier in their careers in the Army in the 82nd Airborne. Uh, both were uh, veterans of Operation Desert Shield, Desert Storm. And um, uh, their, their point uh, in this piece is that the military and they, they're, you know, two judge advocate general officers taking, um, taking umbrage with, uh, not just the, the military writ large, but also specifically with people from the JAG corps in any of the services, uh, and the tendency that they've seen over the last, you know, 20, 30 years now, uh, for JAG officers to look for reasons to say no uh, for commanders uh, to take action rather than look for ways to say yes and vigorously pursue the enemy. Now, this is their position. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to paraphrase the article uh, as, as best I can, but, you know, their point is specifically about um, being able, you know, the, uh, Admiral Mullen, when he was the chairman, famously said, we can't kill our way out of this war, meaning the war with, uh, with you know, uh, radical extremist terrorists, um, and, and they're, you know, they take, uh, they're making an argument, well, you know, perhaps we could try, right? We haven't really even tried, 
and we've we've sort of fought this war in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Yemen, in other places of the world. We've fought it with one hand tied behind our backs. We've had very, very restrictive rules of engagement. Um, we have applied force in a not just a measured way, but they would argue in an extremely um, circumspect way, uh, in a way that the the enemy has figured out, the adversary has figured out that we are, uh, you know, curtailing our uh, application of violence pretty pretty carefully, right? Um, and so, uh, the, the, you know, their point is, hey. Uh, if, if you want to win a war, wars are about violence. It's about applying violence. It's about going after the enemy uh, in ways that make the enemy hurt to the point that they're going to stop doing what they're doing. And we have not done that uh, very well or very successfully or very, um, uh, you know, we haven't, we haven't done it uh, to the full extent that we could as we have against other adversaries in the past. And, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, point. We it was an article. Uh, a lot of people attacked it uh, over the weekend on Twitter and Facebook. A lot of people also applauded it. So uh, it's getting you know comments for and against. Um, and you know anyone out there who had questions about whether it was vetted or not, uh, this is a feature article. Like all feature articles, we the staff read it, uh, and we sent it to the editorial board. Our editorial board. Uh, supported publishing it. Um, we did. We did. Uh, like you know, we, we honed it and we tailored it, uh, as we do all pieces. Um, you know, there were a few things that we thought um, you know distracted from the main point, and so we made sure that it was uh, as as well polished an argument as we could, and we published it. But we also will publish anybody who wants to write to the contrary. Right, uh, letters to the editor, comment, and discussion. You know, comment on Facebook is out there, Twitter is out there, um, but you know, this is part of our our job to present an open forum for people to have discussions about you know real topics uh, in in the military and national security sphere. So, uh, yeah, but that that piece is called uh, uh, "Can't Kill Enough to Win?" Question mark Think Again, uh, written by two Jags, and it's and it's getting a lot of attention. So the just to supplement what you're talking about there uh, in terms of the social media feedback, um, you know, I mean, if criticism is fair and we're obviously open to it. And as you said, if you've got a beef, please jump in the fray, comments and discussion in the magazine. There's a, a myriad ways in our digital usni.org to comment on an article. Um, but the thing that got my dander up was some of the broad brush accusations about the editorial direction of proceedings. You know, so just last month we published what were arguably some progressive pieces about women in combat and women in command. And as you said, we're about to do a transgender piece. So we, and as we've said on this show, Numerous times, we don't have any political aspirations or any political ideology, right? We're just pro-sea services, pro-let's-make-the-sea-services better in accordance with the original intent of Admiral Warden established in 1873. That's our motivation. So fair enough to point out somebody's bibliophile uh, or bibliography uh, in terms of some of the other things that an author has written about, but... 
party foul, especially if you have no idea what the Naval Institute does. And in some cases, our critics don't. And I know this for a fact because I know who they are. Um, so all I say to that is welcome to the Naval Institute. Um, can I introduce you to the options of membership? Right. You know, and, and uh, or can I introduce you to the history of the Naval Institute in terms of uh, changes and existential matters around tactics, doctrine, manpower, foreign policy, uniforms, social engineering, name it, right? And we've been all over it. Um, so, right. Um, right. you know, again, obviously you and I are unflinching in our pride of the Naval Institute. Um, and we use this forum occasionally to remind the active listeners uh, of what it is we do. Um, but like you said, look, we're, we have a process. Um, we don't have, it's not like you said, well, look, this one's too conservative in its leaning, so let's tailor it this way. Or, you know, we need, we owe MSNBC a favor, so let's do it this way. We don't, that's not how we think. That's not the process. Right. Right. You know? And um, another, you know, another thing about this, uh, one of the things that we, and the staff and the editorial board, particularly liked about this article is that. Uh, it it uh, cites an author who was a proceedings author of the year and is well regarded in the military community and the military JAG officer community as sort of the doyen of, of military uh, um, military law, right? And so um, one of the the points that this uh, article brought up is that. You know, we have lawyers in the, in the military taking a, a very, very restrictive rules of engagement stance. For example, um, they point out that in many cases uh, where we've had predators flying overhead, watching terrorists, uh, even, you know, known terrorists, if they're not in the act of doing something that's a terrorist act, that we would not take the shot. And they cite... Um, a, a point made by uh, Hayes Parks, Colonel Hayes Parks, who was a, a Marine infantryman in Vietnam and then became a JAG officer, who, who pointed out in several papers that were well-received uh, and are considered, um, you know, legal fact, right, uh, long-standing opinion. Um, and Hayes Parks pointed out that, it, it you know, a farmer uh, who is engaged in IED making at night um, you know, during the day, if we find that person, we know that he's an IED maker, uh, you know, and he's, and, but he's engaged in the act of planting his field during the day. He's still an enemy combatant. He is a lawful enemy combatant, and we can take him out, even while he's plowing his field, because we know at night that he's making uh, IEDs that are going to kill our forces, you know, in the back of his garage. And so... You know, these these two authors are pointing out that our, you know, our, our judge advocate generals have got to be uh, of the mindset that the reason that, you know, once we are committed to war, we are going to win the war and we're going to, you know, act in accordance with international law and laws of war, but that we should use those laws of war and rules of engagement to the full extent possible for the advantage of our military you know that we're we're not. It's not about a fair fight. It's about winning the war. Yeah, and remember again what Secnav Spencer said on Monday is uh, his job is to give our troops, our forces, the tools to not have to fight fair. Right? He doesn't want it to be a fair fight. Right. 
So right, that's right. right in keeping with what uh, what you're talking about. Okay, so we're running out of time, Bill. Um, a couple of things here that uh, for our uh, Facebook audience, um, I'm just going to show them what our Christmas card looks like, right? So it's a cool, okay. cool picture. Um, I give give credit to uh, Karen Eskew, our chief of design, uh, who came up with that Christmas card design and made it happen. Yeah, so this is the USS New Mexico just after World War One at anchor, BB-40. Um, you can see uh, Karen did a cool job of uh, highlighting Santa and the flag at this battleship yep. at anchor. And uh, another thing, and this is a really early look, and this is what the Proceedings Podcast audience gets to see, especially those who join us on Facebook Live. Um, so we mentioned um, Emma Warden, right? So we're going to do T-shirts that we're going to introduce at West. Um, and on the front, you're going to have this image of Admiral Warden. He's a badass. Look at that beard, right? And this guy's like, he could be in ZZ Top, right? So he's the founder. <laughs> he was, as we've said before on the show, he was the skipper of Monitor in the Civil War of the Monitor, the Ironclad. So, and on the back, um, we haven't quite decided. Uh, in fact, you can tell us which of these ideas you like better. So, you know, here at the Naval Institute, we talk about the dare factor. You know, the dare, uh, those who dare to attempt to make the sea services better by putting their thoughts, let's just call it on paper. That includes right. digitally. Dare, dare, dare to read, speak, think, and write. Exactly. So that's our mission. Um, so imagine on the back or on the front of the T-shirt, you'd have this cool image, right? And on the back, it would say hashtag, hashtag I dare, right? That's one idea. And the other one is the tagline that we use many times on the show to, to end the show, which is victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute. So um, of those two, let us know what you think the better one is. Um, but I really like this image. It's classic but also hip, which is, uh, you know, really cool. So we're going to be rolling that out. Again, this is an early look for our audience uh, in early February. So lots, we to, had, lots we to do. A, yeah, speak, speaking of the power of the beard... Uh, we had an author recently uh, put in a, a piece up on the blog talking about how the Coast Guard ought to allow beards back in the, uh, in the Cutter Fleet. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm all for that. Yeah, I remember, uh, you know, my early, my first cruise on Indy back in 84, beards were illegal. Um, and uh, that's kind of, that has some panache to it, right? There's some, right. some interesting right. stuff that goes on there. Um Okay, Bill, we'll have a safe trip uh, back from Newport. We'll see you here uh, uh, Friday. Um, and right. uh, Thanks, Ward. Yep, see you Friday. Yep, and uh, everybody else, um, well, as I, uh, I'm i sitting here on Hospital Point at the Naval Academy, tonight is the bonfire for the Army-Navy game, the big pep rally. Um, as uh, everybody may know, the Army-Navy game is in Philly uh, on Saturday on CBS. I think kickoff is at 3 o'clock. Eastern time, so check that out. Beat Army. Go um, Navy. Go Navy, beat Army. I'll be on the sidelines ha handling the uh, the down marker on the home sideline as part of the chain gang. My academy class does that. All right. Um, so All right. hopefully it's not too cold. Um, but we look forward to uh, seeing the Blue Angel uniforms. Uh, that That's going to be pretty cool. I got my Blue Angels hoodie. It's uh, you, Maybe you guys have seen that on social media, and we've also covered it at, uh, at USNI. Um, what the new uniforms look like. The Army guys, uh, West Point, is uh, saluting the 10th Mountain. So their uniforms are very white, 
and ours are that very signature Blue Angel flight suit blue with that also the, 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 the yellow, the gold. It's a very skipping, yeah, yeah unique color yeah. that the Blue Angels use. So um, it's going to be a colorful one in, in any case. Uh, hopefully it's not too muddy and snowy and cold and windy. Uh, you know, we've had good, good years and bad years as far as, as weather. But in any case, it's going to be a great game because the Commander-in-Chief's trophy is on the line. First time that's been the, the case in a number of years. And Army actually could win the Commander-in-Chief's trophy if they win the Army-Navy game. So this one is going to be a hard-fought game. So uh, make sure to check it out. So we'll see you uh, here next week. Um, and uh, thanks, as always, for uh, for tuning in via Facebook Live and for listening to us. You can check us out on SoundCloud or at usni.org. Um, we're here every week. Um, send us your ideas. Join the Naval Institute at usni.org. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.